What is good, guys? It is Wednesday, September 2nd. Time has flown by. I can't even believe that this podcast is entering its fifth month and has been the most exciting ride of my life, interviewing some of the most successful and visionary business leaders from the perspective of a college student and sharing their insights and career advice with the CEOs of tomorrow. Before we begin, I want to thank each and every one of you who tunes in to listen, who engages with our content, who's behind our mission. This is a revolution and we're leading it. My next guest is legendary entrepreneur Seth Goldman, founder of Honesty and executive chairman at Beyond Meat, two extremely successful mission-driven companies that service case studies for how business can change the world and do social good, but also make a profit. Seth shares some incredible insights from his journey. I'm going to stop talking now. Let's dive into this interview. Seth, a question I like to ask all my guests. When you were 20 years old, when you were in my shoes, yeah. like, what, did, what did you envision yourself doing? You know, I actually thought I was uh, going to follow a political path. I had worked in uh, campaigns and uh, back in when I was 20, I had been working for the uh, governor's campaign for Mike Dukakis, who went on to become a presidential candidate. So... I was, you know, excited by that kind of platform. And so uh, I ended up um, going to work for his vice presidential candidate. But I think I had always assumed the way to make an impact, uh, the most effective way to make an impact was in was through politics. And uh, that's where I, th I think I, I thought I'd end up. Was there a moment when you were like, wow, business can be almost just as transformative as as politics can? Yeah, uh, when I was in business school, the first case study we picked up was this um, a case study that was a business um, that had been come, this offshoot of Ben and Jerry's, and it was called Rainforest Crunch. It was an attempt to to mm -hmm. you know address rainforest issues with a commercial product, and that got me excited. The business actually didn't succeed, but it got me excited about that. And I've always you know, um, I'm still interested in, in follow politics, but I've always <laughs> uh, resisted the temptation to get into that because business continues to demonstrate to me, you know, you are able to make a real impact. Um, there's a lot less bureaucracy and uh, sort of um, just positioning or, or, or um, posing, you know, you just uh, get to go in and, and really focus on the impact. So, you know, even as recently as last year, I was Sort of once again looking at you know is is should I think about a political path and and uh, decided instead to go out and launch this next enterprise, eat the change. And another case study that's kind of bread and butter in business school. I'm a junior at Michigan Ross, uh, and that's Coke versus Pepsi. And when you read that case uh, as a student, you re realized there wasn't really anything in between. You know the the sugary Pepsi and Coke and and the Dasani or the bottled water. Why why do you right. think that was? Why 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 was that? <laughs> yeah, I think um, the way um, I looked at it, you know, these beverage companies will do market research, but they'll do these tastings and they'll ask someone, you know, do you like the um, a small? You're drinking a small sample, and they say, which do you like better? And and in that kind of setting, a consumer will usually just choose the sweeter drink. What they don't get feedback on is ask someone to drink a whole bottle of something um, and where they don't have all the information rather than just say, what do you think tastes better? You know, uh, well, this one, what if this one has a sixth of the calories um, and how do you like the taste of this? And, and what we found is, you know, our, our drinks did fill a need that those big companies were missing. And it became even more flagrant when we looked at the kids market, because of course you ask a kid, 
which drink they like better, they're going to choose the sweet drink. Um, and so that's why most kids' drinks were at 100 calories. But when we brought out Honest Kids at 40 calories, it turns out the kids were, were accepting of it. I wouldn't say they were <laughs> thrilled, but they didn't <laughs> reject it. And so if you ask a parent, you want your kid drinking a drink with 100 calories or 40 calories, that's a no-brainer. The parent's always going to say 40 calories. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we really highlighted something the big companies were missing um, with these what we call just a tad sweet formulations. A wonderful thing about going to a great business school is being able to interface with the professors there. You know, for me, I, I love just dropping in on office hours and talking about business in the world with my professors. In your case, uh, you you went up to, to one of your professors, uh, Barry Nailbuff, and you pitched him on a low calorie beverage company. Uh, what, what did he, how did he receive that? Well, it's funny. He pitched me as much as I pitched him. I came up to him after the class. I said, you know, this is really something that's missing is that less sweet drink. And he's like, yeah, I agree. You know, we should do some formulations and do some focus groups. And I was in my second year business school. So I said, well, that's a neat idea, but it's not something I can really consider as a business. Uh, and so um, I, you know, went off uh, from business school and went and worked in the um, for a company called Calvert, which did socially responsible mutual funds. And it, it was there after a few years in, I was enjoying the work, but I was also getting that kind of uh, entrepreneurial itch, thinking about what's next. And uh, after what, a presentation I gave um, for Calvert in New York City, I went for a run. And after the run, I was thirsty and I went to a cooler and I said, there's still nothing out there that's going to quench my thirst. And I reached back out to Barry and said, now I think I'm ready to do something about this. And of course, he he was had always been eager to see it pursued. But in addition to that, he had he had just come back from India where he'd been studying the tea industry and had come up with the name Honest Tea. Uh, and so he, you know, you connect that name with that market opportunity. And so we converged and agreed to uh, collaborate. I think uh, a lot of us from one time or another have had a light bulb go off in our head where we've thought of a new drink or a new cocktail or a new mixture or something. And we've like thought about, you know, bring it into, into the 7-Eleven, right? But what is the greatest challenge of actually formulating an idea for a beverage and putting one on the shelf? Like what was the hardest part? It's not that hard to come up with the idea. In some sense, the biggest challenge is taking that leap and saying, do I believe in this idea enough that I'm going to go out and and go after it? You know, that's the biggest difference between, you know, the idea that happens and doesn't happen. So it's all right. Okay. I believe in it, but you know, sitting around a table saying, ah, someone should make this. It's easy. That's what you call the, you know, sort of uh, armchair entrepreneurship, (laughs) throwing out ideas. Uh, but you know, do you, it, uh, I, I, it sounds strong, but are you going to jump off the cliff with that idea? And, you know, is that your, <laughs> is that what you're trusting to be your parachute? Um, and so, um, once I made the commitment to go, you know, then I had to figure everything out. And of course, all of it's hard when you're starting out, the production is hard, the distribution is hard, uh, financing is hard. All of those things take work. Uh, but it's that first leap. That's the biggest challenge. And beyond that first leap, that the financing, the distribution, like when you look at the timeline of Honest Tea, I mean, it's crazy. Like you jumped off that cliff and then, you know, you, you landed on a jetpack, which brought you right back up <laughs> and even higher than where you were before. But w- which of those, which of those roadblocks do you think uh, were the most prevalent? It was all hard. It was, you know, you, you kind of, it's like when you're juggling um, plates, so you have to keep them all spinning. Distribution was a continuous challenge because in the beverage industry, you really want to be on those beverage trucks. You don't just want to be on a 
generic delivery truck because you've got to get to the shelf and, and beverages turn over so frequently you've got to have someone servicing the shelf. And so um, yeah, one of our biggest challenges was getting distributors, beverage distributors to, to take our product. And, and especially because at the time, Snapple was really the dominant brand. And it was, it was that oh, Snapple yeah. was the brand brand that was distributed by independent distributors. So we weren't able to, able to get on the pet Coke or Pepsi trucks because the only, they only carried products that those companies owned. So Snapple had some independent distributors and, and we, we'd go reach out to those distributors and, and they were, they understood why our business made sense, but they were also a little worried that Snapple, you know, would, would be upset if they carried brands that they called competitive brands. And, and in some cases, Snapple actually tried to take legal action to prevent them from carrying on his team. And and when Coke invested in in two thousand eight to buy a forty percent stake in Honest Tea, was that like a turning point in your eyes? Like, wow, Coca Cola yeah. is investing in a low calorie beverage. They're organic behind organic, too. yeah, yeah, and fair trade. It was because it definitely helped. Um, I'd say legitimize that we're what we're trying to do. This mainstreaming, this democratizing of organic drinks. Um, is is going to happen, and and it really has. You know, we saw our distribution expand from fifteen thousand stores to over one hundred fifty thousand stores. We saw our Crazy. kids' product get carried in restaurants like McDonald's and Chick Fil A and Wendy's and Subway, all types of places where people don't go to find organic drinks. They're just looking, you know, for for food and drink. And so to have an organic uh, beverage option is really on the menu, not just a sort of as an exception, but right in the middle. Um, it was great, great step for that mainstreaming of organics and then yeah three uh three years later coke ended up buying the company and, and at that point were you getting the entrepreneurial itch again to do something else no it was still a lot of building to do you know we we had grown but i knew there was so much more to grow so so you know i continued to be entrepreneurial and work you know our team worked hard within the coke system to expand distribution to get into new outlets to also build it out internationally. Um, and and uh, it was important to have my continued presence there because there were frequently tendencies, which large companies have to kind of um, make decisions that weren't necessarily brand focused, you know? And so I, I uh, helped steer the business, you know, keeping it, we called keeping it honest, uh, but also really growing it aggressively. And we grew it Basically, from the time Coke invested in 2008 till the time I left, um, which was just at the end of last year, we grew about 11-fold. Um, so there's a lot of growth still to make happen, even after Coke's investment. Crazy, crazy. And a, a year after that acquisition, uh, I believe you you met Ethan Brown, and he sold you on on joining Beyond Meat. Uh, obviously, your your goals aligned perfectly. Um, yeah, and even and even yeah. He yeah. didn't even sell me. I mean, I was interested. I reached out to him at first okay. and just said, this sounds really interesting. Yeah. And then when we connected, we, we were clearly aligned in terms of goal. We were, um, I was inspired by his vision of transforming the meat case into the protein case. Um, I think he appreciated my um, entrepreneurial uh, experience, you know, having scaled a mission-driven business from startup to, to, to scale. And, and so uh, we got into a, regular cadence of just weekly calls where I would check in with him and give him some advice or make some introductions. And, and then that shifted to every other day because we had a lot to talk about and a lot going on and, and he found it valuable. And so we just kept 
working together. And, and, um, and then eventually in 2015, I transitioned into the role of executive chair of the board of Beyond Meat. And that really helped me um, spend more dedicated time uh, building the company during a, a really critical period of growth. Um, you know, when I, when I joined in 2013, uh, sort of on the board, uh, sales were less than a million dollars. And then obviously we've scaled it quite a bit since then. Yeah, definitely. And, and when I interviewed Chuck Muth, the chief growth officer of Beyond Meat, uh, a few weeks ago, he mentioned how, uh, so he, he joined a few years after you. Um, yeah. But he still, he still was like, we didn't really think that it would catch on the crazy way it did. Like, yeah. he didn't even, did you, did you think that meat eaters would be eating this? Or did of you think it was, was only vegans or vegetarians? Yeah. That was the goal. And you know, Chuck worked with me at Honest Tea. So that was, uh, that was the way he got, uh, brought, we brought him out West. But uh, yeah, the goal was, you know, once you go to talk about mainstream or democratizing, you can't just put this product in the freezer case where the vegetarian shop, just like Honest Tea didn't want to only be in the organic section of the store. Beyond Meat didn't want to be where the vegans shop. We want to be where the meat eaters shop. And, and that was always the vision. It was just, we needed to get the product um, to the level of quality where you could have that legitimate connection to that consumer and, and the buyers tasted it and said, this tastes good enough to put in the meat section. So that was the vision. And, and it's been exciting to see that come to fruition. And is the pork market overseas in, in Asia, is that what's next? Is Where are you putting your energy? Because you're also leading Eat the Change. So where are you yeah. putting your energy in terms of converting humans onto to plant-based protein? Well, so beyond meat, you know, obviously we have stood up a facility in Asia. We've got one in Europe as well. So that, you know, we're, we are looking at the global opportunity to scale plant-based protein. Um, the new business I'm launching called Eat the Change is a plant-based food line. It's going to be packaged food. It'll launch in early January. And we haven't yet announced the, the first product line, but we're going to be um, using um, organic ingredients to bring people nutrient-dense foods that are delicious and, and, and spike. Mendelssohn is my co-founder in that business as well. Awesome. So Seth, to round this out, what piece of career advice would you give your 20-year-old self or yourself right before you started mm -hmm. Honesty that would have really helped your perspective going about the business world? Well, I have a few things. First, I'd say it's not a race. You know, I see students who come out of college and go right to law school. And it's like, ah, I don't know if you, you, you know, and that puts them on a career track right away. Well, it's maybe five years after they've been a lawyer, like, oh, why did, I'm not sure I want to be a lawyer. So don't race to go on the career path. You know, um, I'd say race to explore, um, try different things, explore different business fields. You know, I did a lot of traveling right after college, which was a fantastic way to learn about the world, about different um, countries, to learn about myself. And I came back a lot more confident knowing I could, you know, operate and function in different uncertain environments. Um, I think, so, so that's an important piece of advice. I think the other thing is think about the impacts you care about. Um, I'm not a believer, look, there's nothing wrong with the idea of, um, well, I don't say nothing wrong. I'm not a believer in the idea that you go run a business that's values neutral and then you donate money to causes you care about. I mean, that's, some people do that and, and that's their choice. My choice is to, to create businesses where the impact is on issues I care about. You know, and then if it succeeds, then we can, when we're successful, that we can also have the ability to donate profits 
to issues I care about. So to me, that's yeah. the double impact. You can do both. And the best part about that approach is I never have to do work I don't believe in. Um, and I, I, I caution people who say, well, I'm going to do this for a few years uh, if it's something I don't believe in, but you know that'll let me do other things. So, well, you know, the downside is you may end up being really good at something you don't believe in. <laughs> that's yeah. that's maybe that the, the worst case scenario is you, you're doing something you don't believe in and you're not good at it, but it's just as bad to do something you don't believe in and be good at it, and then you're stuck. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I always say, think about what you're doing, make sure it's something you believe in, and then go after that. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Seth Goldman, the founder of Honesty. He's also the executive chairman of Beyond Meat. Delivering impact and doing social good shouldn't be a marketing tagline, but an operational necessity in business. Seth's companies set a gleaming example for how business can change the world in positive ways. Hope you guys have a great rest of your week. Be with you again on Friday with another epic episode. Stay frosty.